Welcome to Cambridge Arts Roundup. I'm Simon Burton and today we'll be looking at the theme of moving bodies as we look at music and dance about outer space, street performers who delight and surprise us, a flamenco dancer too, and we explore the subject of sex, science and serendipity that intrigued a famous poet. In this edition... We step right off the planet into the wider universe to get to grips with the Sound of Space project that explores space realia and incorporates it into music and dance with artist Diana Scarborough. In a month when missing Charles Darwin notebooks are mysteriously returned to Cambridge University Library, award-winning author Patricia Farrer talked on the amazing story of his poet grandfather Erasmus Darwin, who was concerned with sex, evolution and plant life. And Italian Cambridge restaurant owner Maurizio shows his other side as a performance artist whose celebrated antics have been witnessed in Cambridge's streets and at the May Balls. A black hole in the middle of our galaxy has just been successfully photographed for the first time and modelled so that we can see what it really looks like in 3D. And a new space telescope allows us to see the beginning of the universe billions of years behind us in time, in light. So turning around and actually looking at the real astonishing gigantic universe that's always been the backdrop to human existence has never been easier now that the media is being flooded with science that aids our understanding of it. And now the internet is moving off the planet. But how do we really relate to it in all its vastness and complexity and give it personal meaning? And how do we feel emotionally about it? Perhaps by giving it flavour and profundity that we can absorb and be creative about as we construct a mental map that fits the reality out there. I've been talking to multimedia artist Diana Scarborough, who's founded a collaboration with Dr Nigel Meredith of the British Antarctic Survey and composer Professor Kim Cuneo called The Sounds of Space Project, which uses the realia from real scientific data from space, converting electromagnetic waves and gravitational waves gathered by scientists into sound waves. This sonic material is then incorporated into strange and possibly haunting new music. The original raw data sounds something like this.
The project tackles a range of questions about space with multimedia and even weaves that exploration of the psyche into exhilarating dance performances with professional dancer Becky Byers. Diana Scarborough says it's ongoing and has been running for quite some time and involves NASA, the European Space Agency and space weather researchers at the British Antarctic Survey and other organisations who engage us on a sonic space journey combining imagination and reality. Diana, first of all, um, tell me about yourself. How did you come to be a multimedia artist? I probably started being what I thought was an artist at 40. But before that, it was a journey from being an engineer when I studied at the Royal Academy. But before that, I've worked as an engineer. So it's a journey. The Sounds of Space project is collaboration with a composer and a space weather scientist in British Antarctic Survey. How significant is space sound to us? As most people are aware, there isn't a sound in space. So the question is, why on earth would I look at the sounds of space? But it's significant to us and British Antarctic Survey because the first sounds that I'm looking at are for the earth sounds, the sounds of the earth from space. This project involves dance, music, photography, film, loads of fantastically interesting things. Who are the people involved? I started it, or it all became, it all started with the space weather scientists with British Antarctic Survey, and it started with the sounds, and looking at the the data as audio became the sounds. From that, I guess it's with my work as an artist that works collaboratively, I bring in other people. So I brought in the dancers, I brought in the composers, and collectively, it has grown from there. Sounds that are recorded as radio waves from the rings of Saturn, um, right out in outer space. How do those come into reality? I mean, they sound terribly. They sound terribly weird. How does that come about? That you end up with a recording like that of weather in space? Well, that's where it's fantastic to collaborate with a space weather scientist. So not only do we get the sounds of Earth, he has access to the sounds from the Hubble Space Craft or uh, international space organisations around the world. So space, the sounds of Saturn are actually from NASA. And uh, so working with a space weather scientist, he finds that and together I take those sounds and add to it, whether it's film or dance or animation. People are just getting used to the idea of um, living fully facing the universe in all its glory in a way that they didn't really do um, uh, that long ago in the past, unless they were astronomers or scientists, everybody's getting into that phase where they're finding it tremendously exciting to um, get into it. Um, it's a very strange but beautiful thing to, to look at through a telescope or whatever it is. But how does music help us to characterise space and come to terms with what's really out there? That's a very good question. I don't have all the answers, but for me... It is wondrous. It is a mystery. And I think my role as an artist is to understand the science and imagine and take us there from Earth to that place. I think the parts of the space that I found fascinating and also hard to understand, and I use art and music and sound to bring that understanding to me, but also to others. Sound is a special palette um, that is sometimes beyond words, that can bring emotion and a sense of time. It's a time-based medium. Me, I'm the creative glue as part of the team. Yeah. I work with the composer and the data, and I'm, I want to tell that story and get that emotion across. 
And therefore, when you look at the Celestial Incantations, our recent album, as you have heard, or you'll hear, every planet or every journey is slightly different. And it is not a whole. It's a journey in time, but I've treated them as separate entities. And um, it's probably a, a fusion of my imagination and the composer and the data and the science. Um, experimenting with contemporary choral music seems to be a very interesting things, thing for um, Kim Cuneo um, uh, to be doing and it's something that a lot of people are doing in Cambridge, there's lots of great groups. Mm. People feel that we should um, look out of this void, um, characterise it, fill it with music, um, experiment with music um, and make it meaningful in a way that actually matches the reality. That's exactly what we're doing, trying to bring a deeper understanding and a meaning and a journey. And I guess underpinning this work is the idea by travelling beyond Earth, taking us and our imagination out there, that we can actually look back and see see ourselves more more completely um, so it's a bit like a travel um, by going away you look at earth and ourselves in respect to that I think I'm interested in or we are interested in is how to get that sense of other of other place and mystery and it is an interpretation so for example Jezero crater and we feel about the red planet and we're using the real audio so it's that all sort of goes in and there's a warmth of the music, but then there's a rhythm of the audio. Um, we're making a kind of sh- musical shape and an experience in each one. With even celestial incantations, um, that music, this new information is coming all the time. So, for example, black holes colliding, or pulsars, or the sounds of Mars. It's kind of fresh and new, and we're reacting to that and trying to tell that story. <laughs>
I've got my collection of dancers who are really up for doing odd things. So um, Becky Bias has joined us on the Sounds of Space project. But before that, she became um, a machine, a, a monotype print machine. And she's been a quantum... Uh, she's been a quantum object in tunneling. So the people I choose are people, are contemporary artists that make shapes. So my choreography is very loose. It's conceptually based. We work together and she becomes that object. Um, it, it seems to me that this, I mean, having watched the dance sequences, you have this um, unpredictable dance um, sequence because space environment is a very unpredictable thing. They're, they're quite jerky movements. They're responsive. They interact with each other like collide, colliding objects. Um, and there's a kind of human reasoning in the middle of it all. Um, and that, that works very well as um, a performing art doesn't it I mean using these space sounds using this music um, and then turning it into a performance that people can relate to I mean that, that's quite something I think for me it's always about perception that we've got these amazing concepts but they are real especially as we explore further and by having dance and interpretation and bringing your emotion that's what they do they kind of ground it but also take us on a journey cataclysm um piece of music um, has connotations of close encounters where you use music as a medium to communicate in space in increasing complexity um, and it has a kind of reasoning dialogue um, which um, he's exploring as well isn't he? He really is and it, it, if you hear that piece you almost feel it's a race of the human against the planet increasing intensi intensity and obviously um, with the black hole and if we end up like that it is a you know that is the end so, so i mean what i would conclude from this conversation is that the the mental map of space is changing incredibly rapidly with the data that's Thank coming you. in and the expansion into space in every way and every part of the psyche is kind of involved in taking um taking this step to to take ownership of it and characterize it and 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 and, and, and basically in some way um uh, absorb and rationalize it in your mind and psyche you know as something that's quite phenomenal so it's all exciting stuff and it's all on your website which is absolutely wonderful Ooh, thank you and just to follow up in case it's better than some of the other stuff is how do you characterize something that's shifting and changing mm. you know is it sound is it how do we mm. think of it? it's all very big thinking very mm. complicated thinking mm. and not how we're used to it. it's non-linear mm -hmm. a lot of it so Dr Nigel Meredith of the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge says it was a hugely exciting project involving making science openly available to artists' interpretations. I kind of focused on the ground-based sounds. As a scientist, I work with data from satellites. You know, you, could, you can, uh, the people that work with the satellites also make their data available as sound. So these are satellites in Earth orbit. And then it turns out that these same kind of signals that you get in the Earth's kind of near Earth space environment, you can also detect on the other giant planets in the solar system. So, you know, we've since sent probes to like Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and you can pick up some of these sounds there as well. So I kind of, um, when I was doing my talk, I, I gradually built up over the years to include more and more sounds. And then I just got to the point where I thought, well, I wonder what other sounds I can find. And then that's when I included the pulsars and the, the merging black holes 
And those sounds only became available in 2015 because that was when they were first detected. These are kind of these are gravitational waves as opposed to electromagnetic waves. Okay. And interestingly, they're also in the audio frequency range. So the the, the scientists that work with the gravitational waves can convert their their signals directly to sound as well. So um, for the talk, I kind of included incorporated all these sounds, and then when I came together with Diana. She was then very excited by the sounds and started to work with, um, you know, um, using them with um, with music and with um, kind of animations and soundscapes and kind of combining it so that we could create a performance. You're also doing things like um, space simulation, video games and film and photography. What are you using and offering with that? Because in that game, they've got, uh, they simulate... Um, every star I think in the galaxy and I can't remember now how many of them are, there are it's like 200 billion or something it's a huge astronomical number anyway they go around with that in their game and they can go off they go off and explore these different planets and one of the things they do in the game is use sound to kind of give you an idea of of what might be on a particular planet you know whether it's got rings whether it's watery whether it's got a magnetosphere that kind of thing and so their audio engineer um, inclu included sounds from the uh, BLF receiver in their kind of scanner that they use in the game when when a player actually uh, is, is approaching a planet and they can use this scanner and it becomes an audio as well as a, as a visual experience. Composer Kim Cuneo, professor and head of the School of Music at Australia National University, said it was a challenging music project. If we go back, you know, several hundred years, Music was sort of seen as quite an absolute phenomenon. In you know, you'd go to a concert hall and you'd have Symphony Number no. One. In other words, the music itself was enough of a story for the audience and the composer. But you know, really from the 19th century, we've had this idea that musicians and composers want to tell a story, and so that was you know, we can think of like 19th century Lido or art song telling the story of often love and loss. But then we get big pieces of music. You know, you just think of the Ode to Joy. You know, it's telling actually a story about humanity, and it's also. You know, we have 1812 telling the story of the downfall of Napoleon. We have, you know, music actually playing a part in the big discussions of our life. And I think what happened in the second half of the 20th century is that musicians started to think about this again, particularly after World War II. And that's really what I think this modern phenomena is reacting to. This idea that musicians don't want to just be the entertainment anymore. They want to be a part of the debates of the world. So we started two projects concurrently. One was the the one which is sort of the survey of sounds of space, which are, which is, you know, the, the one that I think we're probably most proud of, it, that's Celestial Incantations. But we also started our other project, Aurora Musicalis, at the same time. And Aurora Musicalis took less than a year, but Sounds of Space took well over two years to do, just because there was so much listening to sounds and working with Nigel, who's, you know, a space weather scientist, of course, to, to learn how to listen to those sounds critically rather than just within my discipline. And only then really feeling that I had a meaningful role to play because I didn't want to be just setting this stuff as I would set any other commission. I wanted to be really thinking about what are the skills of music and how do they relate to these naturally occurring sounds that obviously have been manipulated to come into our hearing. As you already alluded to, they're phenomenal sounds. They move us so deeply. And so what sort of sounds or what sort of techniques really work with them? And I experimented for about a year and a half trying different things. You know, I tried contemporary music, classical music, world music, and bits of them all sort of came through because they're sort of beyond genre, the sounds of space. When I first went over to Cambridge to work with them, we had Becky Byers, a fantastic dancer, and I really love Becky because she's had a really rich, full dance career in the sort of what we call traditional 
dance, but she's now a woman who's approaching middle age, so she's also got this potential for stillness. And working with her really influenced what the music became, because I quickly made things up to work with her, but then the experience of how she physicalized those sounds definitely influenced the final compositions. Thank you. 
you found us. This is Cambridge 105. Leather notebooks written by Charles Darwin thought to have been stolen were mysteriously left in a pink bag at Cambridge University Library a few weeks ago with a happy Easter message to the librarian inside it. The small leather-bound books are worth many millions of pounds and include the scientist's Tree of Life sketch central to developing Darwin's theory of evolution. It's lesser known that Charles Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, a doctor, poet and enlightenment thinker, also championed controversial ideas about evolution 50 years earlier. I've been talking to award-winning author, scientific historian and emeritus fellow of Clare College, Patricia Farrer, on her new book about his life, Erasmus Darwin's Sex, Science and Serendipity, to find out about a man with a remarkable life story. This is from his third poem, uh, The Temple of Nature, and it suggests very forcefully that human beings have evolved from the very, very lowest creatures, that they're not a separate creation by God. It says, wise to the present, nor to future blind, they link the reasoning reptile to mankind. Stoop, selfish pride, survey thy kindred forms, thy brother emmets and thy sister worms. Emmets was a word meaning ants. So what he's saying there is that as a human being, you're related to the very, very lowest creatures who exist on earth. And that was a hugely controversial thing to say. Now, Erasmus Darwin, obviously, uh, as many people might not know, was this um, uh, this famous poet, but he was also grandfather of the famous Charles Darwin. Yes, they never met because Erasmus Darwin died before his grandson was born, but it's very clear to me that he had a big influence on Charles Darwin, and Charles Darwin was very interested in the theories of his grandfather, which were also about evolution. In the news just now, we've had um, these famous notebooks of Charles Darwin, which have been mysteriously returned to Cambridge University Library, which brings Darwin once again to the forefront of the Cambridge imagination, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. And one of those notebooks, Notebook B, is particularly relevant because uh, Charles Darwin started it when he came back from the Beagle and he called it Zoonomia and he underlined that and that's on the first page. And Zoonomia is the name of the massive two-volume medical textbook that was written by his grandfather. And that's the notebook in which uh, Charles Darwin made the first sketch of an evolutionary tree. So Erasmus Darwin was in there right from the beginning. The concept of serendipity was extremely important to him. Now, why was that? That was, it was a very 18th century concept. It was the idea of a chance occurrence. You should always take advantage of whatever chance throws up at you and pursue that particular clue as if fate has offered it to you. The word was coined by Horace Walpole and it was based on one of the tales from the Arabian A Thousand and One Nights. And it was something that was believed in in science. So Erasmus Darwin's close friend, Joseph Priestley, was a great believer in taking advantage of chance when he was carrying out his chemistry experiments. But it was important as a guiding principle for me when I was writing the book, because if you 
find something you didn't expect to find and follow that up, you end up writing a different version of history from anyone that's been written before. It doesn't mean it's wrong, it doesn't mean it's right, it just is different and original. And I think serendipity is incredibly important in both scientific research and also historical research. I think it's coined by the quote the significance of the unexpected in science. That's that's one of them, and it's named after the Prince of Serendip. Serendip was the old name for Sri Lanka, and the stories about three princes who get sent off by their father to have a sort of gap year wandering around, and uh, one of them gets put in prison, accused of stealing a camel, and then he explains how it is he knew which camel it was. So somehow Horace Walpole made that into the English word serendipity. Now, The Loves of Triangles, what was that about? Uh, So that was a satirical poem that came out um, in the 1790s. And it was uh, published by by the Tories, by Canning, by by the far right, by the defenders of the British establishment, who were really terrified in case all the revolutionary fervour from France crept over the Channel. And Erasmus Darwin was one of their victims. I mean, he was made to represent the radical left. So they wrote a long poem in three parts um, called The Loves of the Triangles, and it started off as a pretty flippant satire on his poem called The Loves of the Plants. It just used mathematics instead of plants. But as the poem went on, it went on over three instalments, the invective became more and more serious, very much directed against his evolutionary ideas, making him look totally ridiculous. And it was one of the reasons why his reputation just plummeted during the 19th century, so that Charles Darwin was in some ways really rather embarrassed to admit that he had this grandfather. Um, Poetry and Enlightenment politics um, really went hand in hand, didn't they? Um, Because these were people who were living um, in the future of their age, really, weren't they? Well, I think poetry in the 18th century was just so important, and it was was an educational medium. There were all sorts of poems written with footnotes about how to be a navigator, and then, of course, all the Romantic poets were writing about um, revolution. They all knew Erasmus Darwin. So uh, poetry was really a very favoured, art form in a way that it isn't quite now. Um, now they say that his his style was a very um, difficult style to come to terms with. Um, tell me about that. Well, I find his style quite difficult. It's he writes in what's called heroic couplets, which are pentam- rhyming pentameters. It's the same style that's used by Alexander Pope. Only the trouble is, Alexander Pope is very very good at it and makes neat little couplets. Erasmus Darwin just is very, in my opinion, is very ponderous and me meanders around and the verse just feels very clunky for modern taste but it was enormously popular in the 18th century his first two books he wrote three books of poetry his first two were absolutely bestsellers they were really really popular there's a poem on page five from loves of the triangles which perhaps we can just dip our toes in the water first with if you'd like to read that yes so this is a parody of his uh, poem about plants And first the fair parabola behold, her timid arms with virgin blush unfold, though on one focus fix her eyes betray a heart that glows with love's resistless sway. 
Now that might sound very might sound very strange, but I think if you compare it with one of the verses uh, from the Loves of the Plants, you'll immediately see why it was such an accurate satire. I mean, it really was near the bone. So shall we read one yeah. from the Loves of the Plants? Oh yes, please. It refers to Linnaeus's system for classifying plants, and it's based on the sexual organs of plants: the male stamen and the female pistils. And what Erasmus Darwin did was imagine a plant uh, with two uh, two stamens and one pistil. So he imagines those as two brothers with a sort of seductive sort of woman. All his poem, the whole throughout the poem, it features these seductive women. So two brothers swains of Collins' gentle name, the same their features and their forms the same, with rival love for fair Collinia's side. Knit the dark brown and roll the unsteady eye. With sweet concern the pitying beauty mourns and soothes with smiles the jealous pair by turns. So that's a, about a flower called, a herb called Collinsonia, because it's got two male stamens, the brother Swains, and one female pistol. And it's absolutely typical of the verse that Darwin wrote in The Loves of the Plants. And having read that, I think the um, the one from The Loves of the Triangles makes perfect sense. It's just a direct satire. Sex, politics, race and religion. Why was he a dangerous man to know? He knew Coleridge, another famous poet, didn't he? Well, he did, and Coleridge originally uh, really admired him. And I, I just found out by chance in, a, in the diary of a local headmaster that uh, he was very worried about having Erasmus Darwin round for a drink because he felt he was a very seditious man that might be dangerous to know. And that was sort of really, that was one of those serendipitous moments when I thought, well, what is this? I don't understand this. I'm going to find out why he could be dangerous to know. And it's because in terms of the politics of the time, he had very radical uh, religious views. Uh, he, he had very radical political views. He supported the French Revolution. He he supported the idea of progress and modernity and those were all ideas that the British establishment were really afraid of. They wanted to keep the existing hierarchy just as it was so that they could stay in power. Um, he was a doctor by profession so he was mm. quite a respectable man but um, he, he challenged the Bible over creation and became a satirical target as well, didn't he? Well, yes, I mean, he was a very good doctor. All the patients absolutely loved him but he wrote this sort of really heart-rending letter. There was an epidemic of measles in the neighbourhood and he went to try and treat all the children who had measles and he watched them sort of coughing their hearts up and there was nothing really he could do for them. And he articulated that familiar quandary. How can there be a moral, loving, beneficent God if God is making his little creatures suffer in this appalling way. And so that was just a one expression of why he didn't really go along with standard religion. He also said, I mean, there's a great quote here about sex and illegitimate children, where he says that babies are little animals that should be taken into care. Now, that's a contrary um, position, isn't it? Um, uh, you know, I know it's not meant seriously, but I mean, you know... Oh, I think it is because, it, I mean, I think it's quite interesting that in both England and also in America, the, the charitable foundations for protecting animals 
was set up about 100 years earlier than the ones for protecting children. And I think the idea was that you had a duty as a human being to look after an animal because it was a lower form of creation. But you didn't have the same responsibility towards children. And it's sort of, it's the complete reverse of how I personally um, think. But uh, that, that's what morality was like in the 18th century. Social progress was very important to him. But I mean, as a man, he... He was, um, you know, in many ways quite a, a rough card. He stammered badly, stammered badly. He suffered from smallpox. Yeah, he got smallpox uh, scars all over his face. He never drank. He never drank. And, and what did he look like? Because um, he was quite fat and ugly, wasn't he? Well, when you look at the pictures, he looks really fat and pompous. He was probably fat, not because of the alcohol, mm. but he did like desserts, but because uh, when he was a small boy, he'd injured his knee, and then he'd injured it again when he was older, because one of the things he did was invent different sort of carriages uh, and to get around in and one of them didn't really work very well and it tipped him out uh, and he was injured and he never really could walk properly after that and he spent hours and hours every day visiting all his patients traveling around the countryside with a large hamper of food so he did get very fat he wasn't particularly good looking he was quite outspoken but he also had a reputation for being very kind and considerate and so his patients certainly adored him he had um, two wives and he had several children children by uh, by the governess, so he was clearly very attractive to women. Um, his wife died in 1770, was that his mm. first wife? That right? was his first wife and she seems to have died of some sort of mixture of alcoholism and drugs and perhaps some mental health problem. It's not really very clear, but after that he was absolutely adamant uh, that people shouldn't drink alcohol and that was one of the things that influenced Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin said because of that, he always felt guilty, even if he had a glass of wine, he felt that he shouldn't be doing it. Now, sex, pleasure, reproduction and evolution were major preoccupations mm. of his all the way through his life as a poet, weren't they? He, he was a very himself, a very energetic, sexually active man. And he had this idea that the whole of creation, instead of being directed by God, was directed by nature. So there was a sort of intrinsic energy, an intrinsic reproductive drive in natural creatures. And he believed that life started under the sea with some sort of little minute creature. And then gradually over the millennia, life evolved according to some sort of plan that gradually unrolled and so first there were the little sea creatures and then um, there were plants and fish and birds and animals and then right up to human beings and uh, rather unlike Charles Darwin he was brave enough to say that he thought animals had evolved into human beings. The distinctive thing about human beings was that they had an opposable thumb so they could grasp tools and they had the power of language. And what was his attitude towards slavery and also towards women in education? Because well, on both of those counts, he gets lots of positive comments compared with, with modern thought on women. He was very much in favour of female education. He felt women should study science. He felt they should be have lots of exercise, wear less restrictive clothing. And he had three daughters... Uh, with his governess, his governess bore him three children, and uh, three girls, and it, most unusually, instead of pretending that he hadn't had anything to do with it, he brought them up with his own children, and when they were adults, he bought them a large country house so that they could open a school for girls, and he even wrote a syllabus for girls' education, which was published. So 
by the standards of the time, he was very progressive in, in regards to women. And similarly, uh, with slavery, uh, one of his very, very close friends was the potter, Josiah Wedgwood. And Wedgwood was one of the leading lights in the abolition movement. He invented that blue and white um, medallion with um, an enslaved African kneeling in the middle, his hands in chains, imploring, am I not a man and a brother? And in his poetry, Erasmus Darwin reproduced that image, and he also wrote quite extensively about the evils of slavery. So by modern standards, he was very, very progressive, and that was something that the Darwin family inherited from him, that Charles Darwin and his sisters were all very opposed to slavery. Um, can, we, can we look at one of his poems on slaves? So in his second long poem, The Economy of Vegetation, uh, Darwin included an engraving of Wedgwood's uh, logo with the enslaved kneeling African. And he remarked in the footnotes that Wedgwood had distributed many hundreds to assist in the abolition of the detestable traffic in human creatures. And he wrote, Form the poor fettered slave on bended knee from Britain's sons imploring to be free. And then later he wrote, he wrote a, a fuller description. The slave in chains on supplicating knee spreads his wide arms and lifts his eyes to thee, to God, with hunger pale, with wounds and toil oppressed. Are we not brethren? And sorrow chokes the rest. Right. Why did the Romantic poets later revile Darwin, um, Byron, Wordsworth and, and, and co? Yeah, they uh, admired him enormously at the beginning, but then uh, his, his sort of the, the rhyming couplets, similar to those that Pope used to uh, write, they seemed terribly, terribly old-fashioned and Romantic poetry was completely different. And so uh, Darwin went completely out of style and they just thought he was very clumsy, very old-fashioned, and they just uh, disapproved of what he was doing. But at the beginning, they were quite influenced by him. Okay, botany, women and morality were the centre of his dilemmas in some way, because he was very keen on the whole idea of sexual encounters in gardens and things like that, wasn't he? Well, Erasmus Darwin was, but um, when Linnaeus first published his classification system based on the sexual organs of plants, a lot of British people were absolutely horrified because botany was traditionally a subject that was reserved for women. And there were all these sort of old farts were going around, sort of exploding. Oh, we can't have our young women reading things like this. And one of Darwin's rivals, a doctor called William Withering, made up a whole sort of vocabulary to avoid words like uh, stamens and pistols, which were, which were seen as being far too provocative um, for young women to study. So there were all sorts of satires were written by all the people who were pro um, what Canning and the Loves of the Triangles were writing. There were all sorts of satires. So one of them was about Mary Wollstonecraft, who um, she fell in love with a married man and she had an affair with someone else. And this was seen as being... Um, being like the poem I read about Colin Sonia, that there was uh, Mary Wollstonecraft s seducing and attracting her two different men. So there were all sorts of satirical poems written along those lines. How would you sum him up at the end? An incredibly 
energetic, forceful and compassionate man who played a very important role in directing Britain to the, towards the future industrial and scientific age. Patricia Parrott, thank you very much indeed for talking to, uh, talking to me once again on Cambridge 105 about this fantastic book, um, Erasmus Darwin's Sex, Science and Serendipity, a great read. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed talking to you. In a vibrant city with over four and a half million visitors a year, it often turns up people with extraordinary talents in great abundance. But there's often another side to someone you meet in a conventional job that's both creative and expressive. One such person is Italian restaurateur Maurizio, who has a thriving business in Mill Road, but as I discovered has several other important talents, including being a charity volunteer half-marathon runner. What I didn't know was that he was a notable artist street performer in Naples, Milan and at the Edinburgh Festival as the Bubble Man, among other contexts, and has been seen on Cambridge's streets and May Balls occasionally in other guises. He's opening a new performance area in the back of his restaurant soon. I join Maurizio along with a Spanish friend who shares something in common with him. Anna Platero is a maritime policewoman, but also has another persona as a flamenco performer in Andalusia in times past. I basically like to keep myself a bit fit, and the things I enjoy doing is yoga mm. and running. Mm. I never thought I was a, a runner until I started running, and then I realized that I, you know, I can run long distance, so I trained and supported this charity called Cambridge Sustainable Food mm. and ran for them. But the beauty about this one in particular was, because I knew that I could do under two hours, but I saved quite a bit of energy because I knew that I wanted to do an epic end, which I did. So when I arrived, there were people, you know, as, as, as normally happens, people throwing up, people exhausted going on the floor, I saved my energy. In fact, I did 218 for that reason. And I got to the line and I did a net stand. Mm. And I managed to get myself up and then come down again and heard that big whoa, mm. because it was amazing. And I felt really good about it because I, yeah, I always like to, sh to a little bit of a shock, you know, like. Um, now, now you, you run a restaurant um, in Cambridge. Has cooking always been uh, a passion for you? Since uh, I remember simmering the tomato sauce growing up in my Neapolitan family, the smell of the garlic, all those things, they always stayed in me and I basically carried it through all my life. I always, I always thought I wanted to have a restaurant one day. When I'm here, I always create what I call it a tumultus of joy. People come in, a lot of people, they come in to see me mm. and uh, I'm, I'm a great host. Um, and there is, you know, we always have a laugh with our customer. We have plenty of returning customer now, regular client, and they come maybe to see me. And if I'm not here, they might be a little bit disappointed. Now, now you're also opening a performance space at the back of your restaurant as well, which is quite exciting. Isn't it? Yes, uh, there's another dream coming through. We've been started this uh, before the pandemic, this space, then we left it, and now I think it's getting to completion. And it's going to be called the Negroni Lounge Bar. Mm -hmm. So it's a mainly a lounge bar based on Negroni, but there are going to be so many other drinks, like all the spritz, including Aperol. It's going to have, we have a new Prosecco called the Durello, mm -hmm. um, and many, many other drinks, like a rum bar, whiskey bar. So basically, it's a proper drinking bar. Now, um, living the La Dolce Vita is quite mm -hmm. an important thing for you, and there's much more to it than meets the eye, isn't there? 
you, um, you, you have a past um, um, as a performance artist, yes. which is something that not a lot of people um, know about you. And you've both performed um, in Milan um, many times, the Edinburgh Festival, and you've also performed at times in Cambridge. Can you in tell Cam me a little bit about that other side to your, your artistic or creative side in Cambridge? I, I did it between 1998 and 2010, but the, um, uh, the years in Cambridge were between 2001 and 2010, because the first three I were in London. I basically was the, I, I, I was the best performance in Cambridge, because there was not many, um, there was not many statues, there, no, there were not many people doing it. And we were looking a little bit earlier uh, at, um, at a, um, a photograph of you as the Bubble Man. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, Bubble Man is a very, very still performance. It is performed through a discipline which in yoga is called Tartaka, which mm -hmm. is blinkless gazing. So I have basically discovered how to not blink mm -hmm. for about an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. And that is what gives a performance the best stillness that you can ever have. The heart is the other things people look. If you can cover that, like Bubble Man was obviously a little bit hunched at the front. So the costume was just clearing off the heart. So the heart, you can't see the movement because you have to breathe. And then the only things that people can look, if you're real, is the eye. And the moment you don't blink, you are the perfect uh, statue. It's, yeah. it's a wonderfully um, disciplined thing being um, a, a street statue or performer. Mm. And obviously, you witness that in Covent Garden um, in London um, and also in Spain, in Barcelona. Um, do, do you often go down to Stitches in Barcelona and look at the street performers there? Well, uh, not really. <laughs> I've always have performed in uh, theatres and, uh, well, open spaces as well, mm. but not really on the street. Anna also has a past like you because although she's um, now a police officer in Spain, um, she used to be um, a flamenco performer. That must have been quite a discipline as well because it's quite a discipline learning how to do these things, isn't it? Yeah, it is. In fact, uh, it was my passion mm. and uh, it has marked my whole life. So uh, it, it really is. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about the variety of the things that you did? There were three different kind of uh, Spanish uh, dances yeah. uh, within the Spanish dance. One, one of them is uh, flamenco and uh, the other one is called uh, classical Spanish. Mm. that is danced mm. with uh, shoes and mm. castanuelas yeah. <laughs> also as well, yeah. castanets, yeah. yeah. And the other one is called the Escuela Bolera and is one that you have to dance without shoes, just uh, with uh, thin shoes, very thin, very mm -hmm. thin. And, and you jump all the time yeah. mm. and, uh, and play Castanuelas as well. That <laughs> um, it's a, a highly skilled thing to do. Do you feel terribly self-conscious when you're doing it? Um, I do until a point then I basically the moment then the, um, then the blinking comes in, you are completely elevate yourself from everybody else around you. And that is what makes you, uh, people wanting to look at you and, uh, and, uh, and obviously when you are a street performer, the way to exchange, people give you a gratitude. Mm -hmm. And a gratitude is obviously money. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I remember the best thing sometimes is not just the money, it's about, I remember once uh, this girl dropped a little message and I was learning English and she wrote, thank you for being. Mm -hmm. And I had to translate it because I know what that means, thank you for be. And then I saw being, that means 
that is an amazing yeah. way to thank you, isn't it? Mm -hmm. To say thank you for being here, to, yeah. to exist, basically. Yes. So uh, that was one of the things I... Uh, I mean, visually, um, the bubble man looks great because you're, you're covered in grey bubbles with yeah. um, a hat on. Um, so you look like part man, part some kind of creature. He's meant, um, he's meant to look like a, like a rock, yeah, like, a rock. A, like if you're coming out from a rock. Mm -hmm. And the things that he makes people wanted to come close to you, mm -hmm. to look you close, I'll touch uh, you, mm -hmm. is the fact that uh, you are wanted to move, but mm -hmm. you not be able to because uh, you made a rock. Yeah. So you kind of like, and the performance is based on that. Yeah. Um, especially when Bubble Man Anch at the front, mm -hmm. it's like there is this way to try to get your back up and the mm. back is not coming up and feels like people wanted to help you mm. but nobody can mm. and everybody's just mesmerized mm. looking are you real or are you not mm -hmm. <laughs> and some people they come in the moment that they come and touch you if you want to make them jump obviously mm. you do that mm. but I found then to make them even more uh, amazed is to just move something very slowly rather than make them jump mm. which is which is a which is a great reaction because there is always you always have a backup from other people laughing mm. but i think if you do it very subtly that creates even more suspense you have lots of different personas that you dress up i mean you, i saw you took a yeah. whole palette of paints to the edinburgh festival and painted your whole body yeah. blue um, as a sort of blue flash figure yeah it was, it was uh, i mean there, there were different colors and i basically had the pa I, I i i got a bunch of pants white pants and every time I was putting the makeup on mm. I was trying to color one of mm. them so I thought I have a, obviously you have to cover your bits you mm. can't mm. and and so each color had a pants um, and I tried several to decide which one I think I would like the best mm -hmm. and blue was one of them and gold mm. gold because gold was uh, doing very well because of the weddings or the private event um, and uh, with the with the with the uh, with Trinity Mabel with St. John's Mabel um, I've done Claire, Claire Mabel, I've done, I've done the Mabels as well with, with, with the golden statue. So they give you the Ferrero Rocher, which is a gold. So uh, you'll be asked to give Ferrero Rocher at the entrance where people come into the Mabel. What kind of reaction, Anna, did you get from audiences once you were performing? To have so many people watching uh, at, at, at the thing you are doing uh, well, in common yeah. with other dancers too. So it, it fills you, uh, I mean, you... you, you, you feel, it makes you feel, feel fair. It's like, yeah. it, it's the same of being on a stage when, uh, say, say you go out of Wembley, well, obviously in a small scale, but it's like going out to Wembley Stadium mm -hmm. and yeah. there is 100,000 people mm -hmm. waiting for you. Um, the only difference is then you go on the street and there is no one there and you have to create that. So you bring the people, but the moment that you have a, the moment that you have a big crowd is the best feeling in the world. Because yeah. uh, you think all those people are here to look at me, to... Mm -hmm. And, and, and also, they, but also they gain, they, they, they get something because you don't, when you look at a statue, you, you feel like you, you are getting some, you know, it's an, it's an exchange of energy, obviously. Yeah. So you don't just look and... Uh, but you can also create, you can create a very positive reaction, mm. but and very rarely is happen, is, it does happen that you might create a very negative reaction as well, of people having a really bad day mm. or something, you know, because obviously, mm -hmm. uh, but mainly, mainly is always a, a, a positive reaction. I tell you what, I did think this, uh, this uh, Christmas, and I would just say to my wife, Sweet, uh, Sweet Gill, which is my co-founder in my mm. business as well, uh, I would say to Sweet, Sweet, I think um, I feel like I want to perform again. 
and and obviously then I didn't do it because I'm putting all my energy into this restaurant and but I I still my my door still open yes yeah. I have to say my door still open um, Maurizio, thank you very much indeed for um, a great interview and also for entertaining me at your restaurant, which was absolutely superb. And Anna, thank you very much indeed too. Thanks to you, Simon. Thank you, Simon. It's been great. Well, once again, the Cambridge Arts Roundup Hour is up too soon, but I hope you've enjoyed being with us and will join us again. If you have an art story to tell in Cambridge, contact me, Simon Burton, at Cambridge 105 Radio.